Thanks for joining us for our conversation this week. I'm Amy Tokas, co-host with Sandy Lane. In this podcast, we have a guest, Christy Reimers. She is sharing her insights and knowledge about food insecurity, which is more recently known as nutrition insecurity. The gap between food and access can be pretty big. The good news is that there are some things we can do to help. Always keeping it real. Thanks for listening to Your Real, Your Ideal. Enjoy the conversation. Well, hello. How are you doing today? Amy, hello. Doing great because we have a friendly, smiling guest on our panel here. We do. Thank you for bringing a guest to us today. Um, Sandy, do you want to introduce Christy? Yes. You know, one thing... Amy and I, we like to bring in guests now on occasion to help school us on issues that we think we can bring to our communities and know better and give back. So Chrissy is going to talk to us about food insecurity. And one thing Amy and I have been kind of going just a little background before the bio, Christy, food security, food insecurity, you know, what is, and I said, really, isn't it food insecurity to food security? Maybe we're learning how to bridge those two. Um, but the topic of food insecurity and how to make it better. But Christy, I've got to divulge that the background is we've known each other, I'd say 25 years by now, wouldn't you say? I think it's right at 25 years. Maybe a few years longer than that. But yeah, it's been a long time, Sandy. So we were longtime friends, but running companions and three times a week we would run together and we like to solve the world's problems or at least learn more. And I learned a lot over the years from Christy because her entire career has been in nutrition. She is a doctor of nutrition, uh, graduated from UNL, although she is an Iowegian, just like I am. We both grew up in Iowa. So we have that common tie as well. But Christy now, and I got to go backwards a little bit too, in those early years, you were with the center of, um, it was a center of nutrition, correct? A human nutrition. nutrition. And so you did a lot of studies and she would tell us, we would go through different studies she was working on, groups she was working with. And then now she's at ConAgra Brands and she is the nutrition research fellow. Um, And I'll let her talk a little bit about that and the subject, but I'll throw one more thing in. And that is Christy and I travel together on occasion with our spouses and if we're when a year ago, when we were in another country, we were sure to go through the grocery stores and look at the kind of food they had. And that's really when I thought again about the food insecurity is she would point out to me the types of foods they had, the differences. And it was really a schooling in me in cultural differences and demographic differences in nutrition. Christy, what did I miss in your bio? Nothing. Thank you. You know, my... When you asked me to talk about this topic, I thought, oh, how interesting, because typically it's not a topic that I speak to, but it's part of my job every day. Right. One of the things that makes it close up and personal for me at ConAgra is that it's the focus of our foundation. So a lot of a lot of programming and effort and, and closeness with this topic comes through that, more of that philanthropic focus of our foundation. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, more and more, especially after COVID, there is so much conversation about food equity right. and 
health disparities and how nutrition security falls within that, that it's even becoming more of a conversation in my every in my everyday work with the business and how nutrition policy affects our business. So it's, you guys chose a topic that's very pervasive mm -hmm. where I think previously we might've just thought of it as being, oh, that's a, that's a sweet philanthropic topic. That's nice. And now we've seen, oh, this is really a pervasive issue that affects all of us and, and people that we love. One of the things I love too, that you were talking about initially was, do we call it food security, food insecurity? The latest okay. is nutrition security. The goal okay. would be nutrition security. Okay. And you think about that. What, what makes me think about the difference between nutrition security and food security is when people ask the question, how can an overweight or an obese person be food insecure? I mean, I've had physicians kind of suggest skepticism that that could, they could both exist together. Mm -hmm. I looked at the stats. It's at least 20% of overweight or obese people experience food insecurity, food insecurity. So when you so think about, it, yeah. Explain that the connection of that, because I was looking it up and I did see that that's one of the side effects of food insecurity was obesity and diabetes, which I guess I can see diabetes because it's, you're probably getting less nutritious food. Is that the same with obesity? There's a lot of hypotheses. So obesity would lead to diabetes that that would be the connection there, but it's like, how can it be connected with obesity? And I, I think that one of, one of the connections is this idea that I'm not sure about my next meal. It's it's more about what's coming next. It's not necessarily really? about what's absolutely the here and now. And so you can see in that circumstance where you're like, mm, I've got $5. I want to make sure I get enough food now because I'm not sure what's coming later. And so there would be that tendency to buy high calorie inexpensive food. Yeah. Okay. That's going to fill up on a bag of chips and it's going to cost me four bucks as opposed to, oh, I think I'll go get some produce and cook it up and have a nice balanced meal. You know, there's just that difference in behavior that is caused by this, um, you know, all, all channeling down from lack of financial resources primarily. Yeah, so it's it's really getting to that place of nutrition security where you feel like people are able to prepare meals eating the foods that they need and that they like, as opposed to just what you've got potatoes in the cupboard, you know, you got so, something. I'm thinking back to previous conversations we've had, but with all good intentions back in the day when Michelle Obama was the, in the, in the uh, white house, you know, it was all about the gardens, right? to have the farm and a lot of people didn't connect with that because they went from food insecurity. So now I'm going to have a garden and plant it. What is the bridge, Christy? How much is education? So you can provide money, right? Or availability. What's the step from going from that food insecurity and maybe lack of knowledge and what the nutrition is? How do you bridge that, that it's effective? 
Gosh, Sandy, I think that's the million dollar question. Right. And we we haven't gotten there. So again, when I looked at the stats, we've gone from 10% of the population like five years ago, and now it's 12% of the population that report experiencing food, nutrition, insecurity. And then you look at the government programs that are targeting nutrition assistance. And there's a litany, SNAP, WIC, Women, Infants, and Children, school, breakfast, and lunch, daycare for seniors and children get reimbursed, emergency funds for food banks, Feeding America. Mm -hmm. And we can all think about in our communities, you can't hardly sneeze without being asked to volunteer for this, you know, donate food here or um, you know, go work at your food bank. I mean, it feels like from the outside that, wow, we have this fantastic infrastructure. How could anybody be hungry? And I, I think, again, there's probably so many reasons. There's probably language barriers, getting access to the, some of these things. There's just resourcefulness, you have to fill out a few forms and know where to go to get the free meal, you know, so if you're not resourceful, you might also end up where you're feeling, where you're insecure. There might be some barriers as far as pride goes, you know, I don't do welfare. I, I think there's probably all kinds of things like that. Um, but I do think there is some, there, there has to be part of the issue is that gap between here's the food and well, what do I do with it? I don't like this. Um, how do I, I don't, I don't have a kitchen. I don't have a freezer. How do I prepare this? I, I don't know if you guys have, I'm sure you have, I know you have volunteered at food banks and things like that. And especially during COVID when we were giving away the big boxes of foods, mm -hmm. we would give away like boxes of onions well, here you go. Here's a box of onions. Oh my goodness. What do you do with that? Uh, I, I remember volunteering at a, uh, a feeding site for unhoused people and the garbage was full of fruit cocktail. And on one hand, you think if they're hungry, why wouldn't they have eaten the fruit cocktail? And then you realize if you don't like it, you don't like it. And it doesn't really matter. You know, you're gonna, if there's other food, you're gonna fill up on other things and you're still gonna throw away food. So there's there's preferences, there's resources, resource issues, there's language barriers. I think there's just so many, so many barriers that allow this nutrition security to stay prevalent really in this, in our rich country. It's It's kind of hard to believe. It's, you know, it's interesting, Chrissy, as you say that, because I was just sitting here thinking, I'm looking outside. I'm like, boy, if I were hungry and I didn't have access to food, where would I go? And it's like, who, who would I approach? I have no idea. You know, it was just like, it, there's not a sign saying here, I can help you. I'm safe. I'm a safe person to approach, to say that you need help. You know, there's just... I can see where it would be hard for somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, a lot of, I think there's a lot of empathy for children. When you think about hungry children, nobody would want to deny that group. Mm -hmm. There's probably less empathy for adults that we would look at and say, you could be working. 
or sometimes it's even a family living in suburbia that would appear to be fine, but after the car payments made, the rent payments made, and the cell phone bills are paid, there's not enough money for food. And so there again, you know, you could have some of the belt tightening coming around food instead of some of those other expenses. I, I remember going through a case study where that was a true example is where they said, well, you know, the family, they all have cell phones, they have car payments. Um, so-and-so needed new shoes for whatever sport, blah, blah, blah. They, they didn't have enough money for food. And so they in fact qualified for food stamps. And I was like, seems like a poor job of budgeting. You know, that was my sort of unconscious bias becoming conscious of, huh? It, but, but really, I, I guess, do you say, do you say no to a cell phone in this day and age? Do you, you know, it, with rent increasing and really the, the price of food increasing so much, you can really see where families that you don't think would be struggling are struggling and, you know, and really don't know where to go. And do you think I, there's, okay. an un, there's an unconscious bias? We talk about children versus adults and especially adults that aren't thin. You know, we, we empathize with seeing pictures of people going hungry. We all grew up with this. Going hungry means you're emancipated. You've got, you know, you're from Africa. And I hear so often comments about, well, they look like they're getting meals. And there's this bias, you know, back to, we'll give money for the kids and we're, you know, you know, that, that overweight person needs to learn how to feed her kids. Right. You know, and you know, how do you yeah. get around that? Yeah. It's and until it hits home, I think it's really hard. And when you, like you were saying, Amy, if I was sitting here hungry and I didn't have food in the cupboard, what would I do? But think about that, the discomfort of that, where I am hungry. I don't have, I don't have money on me right now. And we've all probably been here, right? Whether it's in an office where there's not food or you were on a, a group experience and, you know, there's a couple hours between you and food and you're starting to get irritated. And um, it, it doesn't matter what your current body weight is, you're hungry. And you feel like I don't have any control. I I'm hungry and I don't, I don't have any food to eat. And it's right. just this, it's a very, you know, primitive response, right? We're all, right. we're all really wired to, to seek out that food. And when we don't have it, it causes really uncomfortable feelings. Yeah. I, so the bias is really interesting to me. I remember I worked at a, uh, food bank down in North Kansas city one time. And I can't remember what it was called, but, um, the guy was giving me an orientation and he was talking about the packaging on the food, you know, not to have something that needed a can opener and, and things like that. And I was like, well, I have never heard that before. And I remember doing food drives down at the kids grade school. And it was like, oh, we can buy pounds of flour to get our, the weights up on our gathering. So the class wins. And I'm just like, okay, let's think of useful things to give I, to people. Can not do just something with the onions with that, the onions and the flour together, yeah. right? Think right. about that. You would win. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. It's just, 
I, I think being aware of the end user is really important. And the other thing that he taught, he told me is um, that he said that they didn't have any limitation on what people took. He's like, they can take whatever they want and how much they want. And he said, there's some, some pride to be able to have some control. And also he was like, you know, people don't take stuff that they don't need it. It's not like there's a, a secondhand market on peanut butter, you know, <laughs> so they're going to take there, what There actually need. is. I mean, my is parents there? go to yard sales where people are selling stuff they got from the food bank. You wouldn't think that'd be, I'm not saying that to say, oh, this is what happens, but um, yeah, but it's a good attitude for him to have because that's going to be the small percentage, right? And why create rules if you're trying to monitor that small percentage. Yeah, true. Well, you hit on something that, so SNAP is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, food stamps historically called food stamps, but now it's called SNAP. And with SNAP benefits, you can buy anything in the grocery store except, you know, alcohol, pet food, ready prepared hot meals and you know, toiletries. So you can buy soda pop, you can buy candy, you can buy cookies, you can buy snacks. And some people have a real problem with that. They're saying, hey, if this is money given by the federal government, there should be guardrails around it and they should only be able to buy healthy food. And the, the prevailing thought, at least for now, with the current rule, is that no, that really kind of takes away dignity if they can't make their own selections. Right. And you, I mean, you can go either way on this one. You'd be like, well, they can buy their own soft drinks. Don't, you know, we don't want to use federal money for soft drinks. But um, that when you think about the overlay of all the regulation on that though, too, oh my gosh, you know, how do you determine what's what? Oh, you can buy that. You can't buy that. Uh, so it, it is a big part of the conversation though, especially when you think about undernourishment is causing a lot of chronic disease. And so are we promoting it by saying, you know, here's your SNAP benefit and you, now you can go buy anything, but it's, it'd be it's hard big... to monitor. It'd be difficult to monitor. I would think, how would you label healthy? I suppose things like no soda, that'd be easy enough, but like, you probably have to do something <laughs> like that. Right. You know, say no to just certain categories. Uh, so does that mean we also can't buy diet soda? You know, I mean, everything becomes so complicated when you right. start. Or your child, you, you're looking for ginger ale because somebody has an upset stomach. Sick. Yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. Yes. And then, yeah. yeah, I have seen, I live down in the river market in Kansas city and we have a city market with vegetable vendors. And then on the weekend we have a farmer's market and there is a spot where you can get your snap. There's a window where you can go and get, and I don't know exactly what they do, but they line up and they get their money to spend down at the farmer's market. And I was like, that is just wonderful that these farmers are participating to give people fresh vegetables and fruit. So that's a federal program, double up snap bucks. It's sometimes called for produce where they can double their snap benefit or double their WIC benefit, whatever government assistance program. And so, you know, let's say they normally get $11 for food a month. They'll get another $11 and then they can go spend wow. it either at the farmer's market so, so here's the, 
you know, from the industry perspective, right now those dollars are only for fresh produce. What if somebody needs some frozen peas? You know, it, it's not for frozen, it's not for canned. And so again, you think about the bias where we all, we all like to think oh, there is nothing better than fresh produce. But then you think how your eyes are bigger than your stomach at the farmer's market and you get it home and it sits in the refrigerator for two weeks. And then it's like, oh, this is getting mushy and you throw it away. Right. So, so we think there's probably good reason to allow all forms of fruits and vegetables. So you know, yes, if you want peas, if you want corn, if you want frozen broccoli all ready to go, it's you can get that or you can get your fresh tomatoes at the farmer's market where you have that optionality. But right now it's only for fresh. So who's who are the policymakers around the SNAP and WIC? Is that the government, I guess? It It all funnels out of the farm bill. Most of the federal assistance USDA programs come out of the Farm Bill. Okay. And so once that bill is approved for funding, how it all gets spent goes to the level of the regulators at USDA or FDA. And so you, you have those bureaucrats who are sometimes appointed, sometimes not, determining, you know, okay, we're going to do it this way, we're going to do it that way. If it's a change, they have to put out a proposed rule and there has to be a lot of input and going back and forth, but they can promulgate new rules or new ways of how these dollars are spent through through that rulemaking public process, but it takes a long time. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I sit here and wonder about, you know, the evolution of convenience food and how wonderful that's been. But also, you know, I can think of many examples of young people that have absolutely no idea part of how they were raised. They lived off of a microwave, putting something in the microwave, adding hot water, you know, all the convenience yeah. food. So cooking is not a skill that they were ever taught. And then I'm thinking back to the onions and the flour and, uh, I'm thinking of John Steinbeck and grapes of wrath. And, you know, they, they, when they huge food insecure, nutrition, food insecurities, right. But they knew how to make anything out of potatoes or the bread, but you know, can you even bridge the technology advancements for not knowing how to make nutritious food? Because it's always been handed to you without an outlook on looking at the label, right? Mm-hmm. Are we just at a point of no return? You know, that that too goes to, does it, you know, it, it's very true that we don't have the same, the same skill set for people to be able to cook. A lot of times food insecure people also don't have that time to cook because, you know, two jobs, kids. And then do you have the appliances? Do you have the stove? Do you have the freezer space? You know, all those other things that go with it. So in some cases, well, you can, while you could look at convenience foods as the problem, they could also be the solution. Right. For those people that are living in a studio right. apartment, don't have, you know, don't have a lot of those things or people that live are living in shelters or, or all of that. So, you know, ideally there's a balance, but I think for a lot of folks having some of those convenient items, you know what it make what population it makes me think of is college students. 
Right. And we may all kind of be of that, you know, we can either remember when the kids were in college easily or have like college kids now where that is a population where we're starting to see shed light on that tons of college kids are food insecure. Wow. And I think we might, we used to make a joke of it like, yeah, I lived on ramen noodles this week and it was a ha ha. But that problem has just gotten worse for college students where they're saying now between 20 and 40 percent of college students are food insecure. And it, it probably speaks to people that, you know, you didn't learn how to cook. Now you're left with breakfast cereal and ramen noodles. And again, what college kid thinks, oh, I'll go apply for SNAP. But they could. Right. You know, it's like that's an option. Think about yeah. Yeah. So that's really a population that's starting to get attention. And how are they, you know, how are they learning and getting through the day if they're food insecure? So and you can start the cycle of obesity too, right? Again, I always said, you know, Chris, you've heard me say this before with my three sons with varying degrees of adulthood and at different ages, I can tell you they were heaviest, puffiest, and, you know, the most body fat when they had the least amount of money. And it wasn't because they could afford the gym. They were eating better food, being able to, you know, being mindful about it. But really it wasn't just going to Dollar General and buying the cheapest of what they could afford and eating that. But when, when, when they were the most nutrition insecure was when they had the least amount of money and they were at their heaviest. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. That, that body weight doesn't, you know, a low body weight doesn't mean that you're food insecure. I think sometimes it means just the opposite, doesn't it? So Chrissy, what can the normal person do? You know, we all are good about going to the food bank and, you know, bringing the heavy flour to the school systems and, you know, donating. I've got a little packet from the Boy Scouts. You know, they're going to come back on mm -hmm. Saturday. What else can we do? What can the common person do to help with the, the issue? How can we make it better? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that besides, of course, being active in your community is the best way and being mindful of the end user, like you said, Amy, where it's like, okay, let's, let's not just do onions and, and flour. Um, you know, beyond that, there probably is a political overlay where, you know, how do we, do we continue to support funding for food or are we, do we expect not? I know there was sort of a controversial episode in Nebraska where the governor refused the federal funding for summer food assistance programs for children in Nebraska because, quote, I don't believe in welfare. And oh, okay. I'm not sure all the circumstances that came together, but he's reversed that position. And now Nebraska is accepting that federal money for the, the summer food assistance programs. So I think there is a lot of education that needs to go on, even with our, our leaders, our politicians, policymakers, to understand that if people... Nobody wants to be on food stamps. Nobody really strives to think this, this is it, man. Give me money for my kids' foods and that's making me happy. That this is really something that's helping people and it's a need. And sure, there are abuses, uh, but for the most part, 
the more we can do to support this and separate separate the food from all these other issues, knowing that we probably need to address the other issues to really solve the problem, issues of financial disparity, racism, all you know, all of it that that we've become more aware of now. Um, how do we establish more equity? It's it's not about just continuing to give food, right? It's about solving those bigger issues of housing and jobs and all of the biases that we know are happening in, in our society. That's probably the ultimate solution. But until then, making sure that there is a, a way of dignity to get people connected with food is certainly, I think, the minimum. That, yes. that we owe our, our society. I agree. Food and healthcare. Like just let's, let's keep everybody healthy and fed. And then they have the dignity and they have the strength to go work. You know, they just have more, they feel more empowered, I would say. And uh, yeah, I, it's just Imagining a world where nobody had to try to figure out where they were going to eat. There's just always a place and there's always something available. I just think how that would change a lot of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And the right kind of foods too. Right. Yeah. We, we probably have an environment that's way overrun with food in general, but it's not necessarily the right kinds of foods. And so there's a, there's a whole systemic change that needs to happen there too, to, um, bring a, bring around that mentality of the food I want is the healthy food, as opposed to the food I want is just what tastes good. Right. Is there a link between, I, because I've heard this term of food deserts, is there, are the food deserts, do they tend to be where there's more nutrition insecurity? Is it linked together? I would imagine so, Amy, you know, there's been food desert. What a phrase, right? It's like, wow, that just creates boom right there. You're right there. And so for a while, there was a real effort to try to bring department stores or grocery stores into the food desert to make a difference. And they found it really didn't make that much of a difference. Isn't that interesting? Where it wasn't necessarily the proximity of a grocery store that was impacting the nutrition of the people. Like it, you know, you could still, you could get on a bus if you really wanted to go to the grocery store, what have you. And I was surprised at that research, but you know, they're, they're probably, especially in today's world of food delivery and all this, that the, the concept of the food desert um, is probably less of an issue and again, it's probably what kind of food is available. Do you have, you know, is it the the corner store that doesn't have any fresh fruits and vegetables? And is that where the most exposure is? But I, I think what we know is it's low income. And of course we know that those, you know, there are fewer retail outlets when you get into lower income. Right. Do you know what that makes me think though is, the goal of Dollar General, and although not, I think it's Dollar General, but thinking about dollar stores, they have become one of the main grocery stores for a lot of underserved people. Mm-hmm. And their goal 
is to never be further than five miles away from any small town, any population. I mean, they, and if, I don't know if you've ever noticed where you'll find dollar generals and dollar stores. It's like, there's nothing around here, but there's a dollar store. And so it's kind of helping to solve this food desert problem because they're starting to make this part of their business model. They've got frozen vegetables. They've got, they got limited produce, but they do have produce. They do. Amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because you can... I have, I have, especially my oldest son, he loves to go to the, and, and now he, you know, again, different things happen. He has a girlfriend who loves to cook and, oh. but they don't like to go to the grocery store. It's overwhelming to them. It, I think it makes them anxious because there's so many people. So they, so they like, like Dollar General and they can get, they'll think through what they can get at the Dollar General for what they cook at home because they're avoiding the grocery store. And, you know, that brings a whole other point, you know, back to maybe anxieties that you think the prices, it's just a little clearer. They know what they're going to get, what things are going to cost. It's a, I don't know. It's a comfort. Yeah. Thing. How interesting. Well, Christy, I just want to say thank you for joining us today. This has been eye-opening and um, I think it's, there's some tidbits in here that we can all take back and just think about you know, how we're, how we're helping solve this and having those conversations with people to maybe adjust biases and just make more aware of, of what's happening. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Christy.